Well, I appreciate the heart of that song because that's what we'll be doing tonight uh, in our time of prayer. It is a searching uh, for the King of Kings. It's a searching for the Lord uh, that uh, we intensely express through prayer. And so I hope you do join us this evening at 630 if you're able. Uh, we'll be praying for our church. We're praying for the Lord's working among us individually and corporately. Um, this is something that's uh, greatly needed. We will have a time of communion uh, within this, this time as well. And so that will be this evening um, uh, for that. Now, we, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever felt lost before. It's, it's, a, it's a bad feeling. It, it takes you back to being a child and you lose your mom and dad. And Every once in a while, that still happens to me. And I found it most frequently happens to me uh, once a year when we go to uh, this conference. It's called the Homeschool Conference that my wife and I go to. And they have this event there called the Book Fair. Now, this Book Fair is chaos. It is just a huge conference room filled with books and curriculum. And everyone there are homeschool parents. And they go hog wild over these books and curriculums. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And uh, I'll get in this. And, and there's over, there's thousands of people uh, at this conference. And I'll get in there. And sure enough, there'll be some interesting booth or kiosk that, uh, that get, grabs my attention, you know, and, you know, something like projectiles and boys and, you know, some little book like that. And I think, man, this is some pretty neat stuff. And I get engrossed in the books or the supplies that they have. And um, my wife really has learned not to pay much attention to what I'm doing. And she's just kind of going on her own way. She's got an agenda. She's got some books to look at. Uh, some things to get. And I'll, I'll look up. And I've just got that lost boy feeling. And you're wondering where's mommy. But you're not looking for your mom. You're looking for the mom. And I'm looking around like where'd she go? And everybody there looks exactly alike. I mean there's not much diversity here. I, I'm thinking okay what'd she have on? Capri pants. <laughs> Everybody's got capri pants on. And, and then everybody's like, well, some kind of pink pastel shirt. And there's just, every woman there has got a pat. They all dress like her. And they all got bags like her and boxes like her. You know, and they've got that same kind of hairstyle. I'm thinking, where'd she go? And it's just a lost feeling. I think I can't go home like this. You know, if I, I go home with all these books, it doesn't matter if, if my wife's not with me. Uh, we're going to forget homeschooling if my wife's not with me, you know, and, and, and so I, I lose the most important part of why I'm there, my wife. And, uh, you know, you just, you gotta, you gotta get your bearings. You gotta figure out where she's at and, and get with her. And, and, you know, that happens in life. And I, th- I think it could happen in what we've been doing and studying in the book of Genesis. Uh, we've, this will be the 52nd time I've, I'm preaching on Genesis. We spent now 52 weeks all together uh, on this subject of Genesis, and, and we spread it out over a year and a half uh, with various other events and, and sermons. And uh, I'm just afraid that maybe somewhere along the way you got um, sidetracked into a very interesting subject, uh, of Genesis, maybe it's Jacob, maybe it's Joseph, maybe it's forgiveness, maybe it's uh, the various other elements that we've talked about. But I want you to walk away from here 
and our time in studying this with the most important thing. All right, I don't don't lose your wife. All right, don't lose the main theme of the book of Genesis. And so, what I wish to do is review the entire book, uh, and and kind of did what I did on February of 2008. Uh, I believe it was February 8th is when I first started this when we did sermon number one intro uh, to Genesis. And so, in some ways, this is kind of a the bookend to that uh, to say, all right, what have we learned? And so we're going to look at this together, and I'm going to ask that we not read our text together as we are doing 50 chapters of Genesis, and uh, I think we will all be very thankful in doing that. Uh, but let's, let's look and see I, uh, what we can learn from this. If you go into a mall, if you go to any new surrounding, I always want to see a map, because this is new terrain that I'm about to, ha- to maneuver through. And be familiar with, I need to have the large picture. And there's three main parts, uh, you know, where you've gone and where you're going. What's your origin? What's your destination? As well as where are you located now? Where are you located now? And then obviously to find your path, your path. And so if we are imagining ourselves on this map or looking at a map, we're using Genesis, we need to know where we have come from and where we are going. As we read the Bible, there is one answer to both of those. We have come from and we are going to the same destination. The Bible says in this way in Revelation 21, 22, uh, the Bible says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And so what I would propose to you as we look at this map, that God is both uh, where we have come from and also where we are going. He is our beginning and he is our end. And so the first question we ask uh, as we look at Genesis, and, and really this is the question I ask any time I study the word of God. Anytime I study the Word of God, and my greatest aspiration, anytime I declare or preach the Word of God, is to answer this question for you, and that is, who is God? Who is God? Because He is both our source and our destination. And so as we look at the map, He tells us in Genesis, uh, what we have here is some of the greatest revelation of who God is. And so, if you will just mind, walk back with me as we do a little review of who God is, uh, as is declared. In fact, I think one of the fascinating things that you can do is to study the book of Genesis and look at the different titles for God. I encourage you to do that. That would be a very rewarding study, is to go from Genesis 1 through 50 and do a search for all the various titles uh, for God and how He is revealed. The first lesson we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 is that one, God is. God is. There is, you know, it says in the beginning, God. There is no argument. There is no intro. It just says, you need to know God is here. All right. And so then it goes on from there. In Genesis 1 and 2, we quickly learn this attribute about God. And here it is. God is all powerful. God is all powerful. And it's demonstrated to us, before us, in the creation of the world. And that God with a word creates light. God with a word creates matter. Uh, God with a word creates water and the seas and, and the animals. With a word, he creates these things. And the lesson we learn is that he is powerful. As we keep on reading, it also becomes clear that God is personal. 
God is personal. We see this especially in Genesis 2 and the Bible describing or in Genesis 3 is Bible describing God walking with Adam in the cool of the day. You remember we introduced this word anthropomorphic. In other words, using language to help us as mankind to understand who God is. Because when he says God is a spirit, we just... We fail to understand that. And so God uses languages to help us understand. But the lesson and, and the, the phrasing, walking with man in the cool of day, is to let us know that God is a personal being. You need to understand that when we say that God is personal, God is a person, we have separated ourselves from Buddhism. We separate ourselves from, uh, well, some of the Hinduism as well as in the New Age. Uh, that we are saying that he is a being, a personal being. And so already there is a separation that's taken place uh, when these two attributes are given out. But we also learn, as we keep on studying, an att- another attribute, attribute of God is that he is all-present. He is all-present. We see this specially revealed in Genesis chapter 26, verse 28 and 32, as well as in chapter 39. You see, we get introduced to this phrasing that says, I will be with you. God is stating that, giving those promises uh, to Jacob, giving those promises to Joseph, giving those promises to Abraham. I will be with you. That he is the type of God, though being all powerful, will abide with us will be with us, will walk with us, will uh, go with us through life. So, he is there, he is all-powerful, he is all-present, he is personal. And also, in Genesis chapter 16, uh, as well as Genesis 18, we get a demonstration that he is all-knowing. All-knowing. For example... In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, in referring to all mankind, the Bible describes that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was not was only on evil continually. And so the Bible demonstrates here that God has an understanding of the motives of your heart. Friends, do you understand that I don't we don't even know our own motives sometimes? Uh, much much less to guess and assume the motives of someone else, but God Himself says I know your motives. I am all-knowing. We do not have to go to prayer and, and say, Okay, God, let me have a briefing session with you. All right, let me, let me catch you up with my life. We do that, not for God's benefit, but we do it for our own benefit. God already is aware. And so he's all-knowing. But as we keep on, we read also that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all. In Genesis 15, Genesis chapter 25, we see that his rule extends over history, over life, uh, that what he predicts comes to pass. And we see the promises or prophecies there uh, in the Genesis, that he can choose to open up wombs, he can choose to close wombs. It is up to God. And as I said, when we were talking about this session, and I think I even realized this even more, parents, we don't plan children. <laughs> okay? I said that before. I had no idea it was a self-prophecy. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, God, God is the one who opens wombs and closes the wombs. You can try your various techniques if you want to, but in the end, you need to know that God is sovereign. Uh, and live like it. He picks and chooses the younger over the older. It is his to do. He answers to no one. He is in complete control. Uh, then we also see that God is providential. We see this demonstrated in Genesis 45 and in Genesis 50. Uh, that he is sovereign uh, and that he is in control and providential even over human sin. 
And this is perhaps maybe one of the more important lessons for you to learn. That though mankind messes up, God still can use the mess-ups of humans for his good. Um, God doesn't say, man, you really messed up my agenda. He says, okay, you know, I knew that you were sin for sinners and that you would do evil. It's okay. I've still got such power and providence and sovereignty and control. Uh, I am all-powerful. I can use the sin, kind, or the sin of mankind for his own purposes, his own good. And so we learn that especially and demonstrated in the life of Joseph. It's expressed for us in Genesis 45, verse 7 through 8. Demonstrated in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. So listen, if you had no other book alone, but you had the book of Genesis alone, you would know that he is all-powerful, that he is all-present, that he is personal, that he is all-knowing, uh, that he is sovereign, that he is providential. There is enough for me to bow down for the rest of eternity and say, God, you are worthy. And is it any wonder that uh, the book of Genesis is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament? Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is quoted just that alone over 165 times uh, in the New Testament because it tells us who God is. Now, now, this is important. Let me just list out some of the, the titles uh, for God that's given. Uh, we are introduced first that God's title is Elohim. This is found especially in the first uh, two or three chapters of Genesis. He is the God, the, the creator God, the Elohim. He is also the title given Yahweh. This is the unique personal title given to uh, this God of the Bible. We also get the, the title, the angel of the Lord. This is kind of a pre-incarnate uh, God, before Christ come, God coming in flesh in certain circumstances to certain people. We see this especially with Jacob as well as with Abraham. We see the title given uh, El Roy, the God who sees and God dealing with Hagar and the injustices done by Sarah, his, her master, and in Abraham. And she's wondering, is there a God of justice? And God says to her, I am El Roy. And she declares, I worship the God who sees the El, El Roy. And then we, we come across the title El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. This is demonstrated when Abraham is, is about to sacrifice Isaac, but God provides uh, a lamb instead and he says you are the El Shaddai the God Almighty he is also described as the El Elyon the God most high above all authorities and kings especially in Abraham dealing with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah he says I serve the God El Yon God most high he's introduced as the fear of Isaac the one that Isaac reveres and worships. He is described as the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. You have enough here for life. To prepare you for life. If just Genesis alone, it tells you enough about God to have everything you need in your suitcase to live life and worship of God. Now, not only does it tell us who God is. All right, that is our origin as well as, as it is our destination. God is the beginning and the end. All right, but you know on that map, it, it helps to know where am I at now. <laughs> you know, I see this map. I see where my destination is, but I need to know where I am. You need a little star on that map that says your location. All right, what I would present to you is that this is the question, who is man? Who is man? Alright, and this is, above any other book, the most descriptive of who man is. 
as a believer, as I look at the circumstances in the world, it is done through the lens of Genesis. Because there's two main answers given to who man is. You wonder who you are, all right? This is it. One, man is in the image of God. It is the, he is and she is the image of God, both male and female made in the image of God. And the second uh, characteristic of mankind that frames all of our thinking is that man is fallen in sin. Okay? This is huge. You, you, if you just think through this, those two attributes of who we are explains reality as we know it and I, I believe the bible does the best job explaining how society works especially the book of genesis is there any wonder why uh, the jews count this as their own while the quran counts genesis as part of their own though twisted uh, in their interpretation of it uh, it is an explanation of reality all right for instance being made in the image of God means there is a, a part of us that desires God and the attributes of God. Uh, when we see beautiful things, we love that, we appreciate that, and we long to see something else beautiful. Where does that come from? I would present to you that comes from us being made in the image of God who is the very prototype of beauty. And so when we see beautiful things, it reminds us of that which we were made. When we see love when we see love in action and all its various forms in kindness or in romance uh and perseverance and sacrifice it is something our heart yearns for why because we are made in the image of god and love god is love and therefore there is something corresponding in our heart that longs for that i'm going to tell you that if we are not made in the image of god there will be many movies and many stories and many books that could not be written we judge sometimes a good movie based on whether or not it corresponds to what we know as beauty and noble as part of the image of god do you understand that? Now, fallen. Fallen. Fallen in sin means that mankind is destined for disappointment in themselves. Some of you are ashamed of who you are. And you think, I hope these things about me are not revealed. And we will go through all kinds of emotional, physical strategies to, to conceal us. Here's a revelation. Look at the person next to you. They're thinking the same thing. Okay? Every single one of us are deeply disappointed in themselves. We're all in this together. And every human you meet, regardless of what confidence they, they exude from themselves, there is a deep disappointment in themselves. And not only a deep disappointment in themselves personally, there is a deep disappointment in society in general. In America, in any country in the world, there is a deep disappointment. Why? Because we are made for the image of God, and the image of God still remains, but mankind does not live up to it. You know, when mankind sinned in Genesis chapter 3, we have all kinds of implications come, and it, and it creates trouble uh, uh, to no end. But... We learn in Genesis 9, 6 that though sin has entered, the image of God still 
is there in mankind. It's impaired. It's wounded, but it's still there. Because Genesis 9, 6 says that if a man kills another, that there is to be a death penalty enacted because of the image of God. Why, why do I respect someone else? I don't think uh, a professor in Cambridge knows this or brings this out. I don't think President Obama brings this out. But when races are at it with one another, why is that a problem? It is a problem at the heart because there is a teaching and understanding that another man, another woman, regardless of what they look like, are made in the image of God. Therefore, I am to respect that person. It is part of my worship to God. That doesn't come out in the media. Instead, let's have a beer and try to talk over this stuff. But that is at the heart. That is the heart of race relationships. And when society does not respect a race, it is because they have a worship problem. They have a worship problem with God. All right. So Genesis 3, 15, God says that gives the sentence uh, for sin. He says that man will have to work and labor and sweat and toil. Uh, thorns will grow up. This will be a problem. He says to woman, to woman, he says, you will have children. But when you have children, it will be done in pain and labor. And now your relationship with husband, with a man, will be impaired because man will have a tendency to dominate and you will no longer live in harmony with that man. And? That explains reality. <laughs> that explains reality. No, no person, no man will naturally lead in a way that is honoring to God of love and sacrifice unless God does a work in their life. And no woman will naturally want to submit to that man unless God does a work in their heart. That is the state of reality. All right. That's where we're at. And so with that comes death. God says, you know what? From this point on, there will be a separation. You will die spiritually at this moment. And from that point on, it's just a matter of time before your body catches up with your spirit. And there is deterioration. At this moment, when Genesis 3 occurs and sin occurs, Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God wanted life to be. How he designed life to be. That of us all worshiping God. Okay, Genesis 3 comes in and we see the ramifications of sin and we see the spreading of sin from Genesis 3 through chapter 11, how sin is rippled out. And and from sin, you have all the health care. All right. Chances are you have a job. Because of sin. Chances are you have a job because of sin. If you're working in the health care business in any way whatsoever, you have that job because death is here and decay is here deterioration is here if you're uh counseling (laughs) all right if you're in the counseling business you have a job because of sin i'm going to tell you i i have a job because of sin if you're dealing with death yeah we have a genealogy his job would be real easy if there was no death you know uh whether it's uh, I think the only job that would probably remain intact would be agricultural and parenting. But those have been greatly changed. Greatly changed. So just consider that. 
consider that, that your job would probably not be unless sin has been here in this earth. And so this is who we are. It is the fallen image. It is to understand that we are sinners. And as we read through the Bible, we understand that this is a mirror, a mirror of reality. And so you have the first son being born, Cain. Cain comes up and, uh, you know, you've gone from eating the wrong, fr- wrong fruit to now killing your brother. Within one generation, Cain is a murderer. The first son is a murderer and the second one gets killed. And so uh, we think, well, there it is right from the beginning. And so it goes all the way to the point where Noah comes in and, the, and God says in Genesis 6, I've seen the intents and thoughts of, of the heart in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And it is an evil constantly. This is where man would be left unto itself. It would be such a world that God would say it's better to be destroyed. And you have this terrible scene of God destroying the world through a flood. It's restarted through Noah and his family. And we wonder, God, did you flood away sin? And the answer is quickly, no. In Genesis chapter 9, you find that sin is still within the heart of Noah, as well as in his sons. And you see the sin occurrences that that happened between his sons and Noah. And then consequently, in Genesis chapter 11, you have the spreading of humanity and humanity in revolt against God, saying we will be greater than God. And God says, all right, sin still pervades all of our society. And he introduces the languages. And we all have different languages to this day. So Genesis chapter 3 through 11 says... This is the rippling out of sin. It is everywhere. Have you wonder how a worm gets in an apple? I don't know if you ever had the pleasure of biting an apple and realize half a worm is there. <laughs> That's happened to me once. And when I found out the reason, uh, it's a little bit more unsettling. Because what happens, it's not that a worm bores its way into the apple. What happens is an insect does. And leaves a little egg and a larvae, and that will grow into a worm. And the worm starts on the inside and works its way out. And so the thought occurred to me, wow, I wonder how many larvae ate. (laughs) That's what kind of grossed me out here. Uh, Worm's bad enough, and you think, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, But that's, that's, it starts on the inside. And what you learn in the book of Genesis, who we are is that we are sinners in our heart. And given the right circumstance, you individually are capable of any, any sin. Any sin. Here in the church body, those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, there needs to be an understanding that any single one of us are guilty of the most heinous of sins. And we are fully capable of violent impulse pervades in every heart. Doesn't matter how religious a society is. In fact, we found that not to be a solution at all. Sometimes the religious societies are the ones that are most violent. It doesn't matter if it's green pines and bears the name. Do you understand that we can be violent here? It can happen. And so it tells us who we are. But then the last question. You remember, we've got to know where we're coming from and where we're going. We need to know what's our location now. Our location now is that we're made in the image of God, but we are fallen. The last thing we need 
to get to navigate a mall or any other place is where's my path? Where, what, what way do I need to go to get to the destination? So the third question is, what does man do? And I'm glad to tell you that Genesis is sufficient to tell you what to do. All right. It leaves us in a bad state. God and who he is and his holiness, holy enough to wipe out earth because of sin and mankind made in the image of God. We have this sin that God detests and can ruin a world. And thinking, oh my goodness, what do we do? All right. Well, it starts from the very beginning. And if you remember what I've said, the theme of the book, the theme of the book, it is God working, intervening in time and history to reveal his redeemer. The book of the Bible is the story of redemption. In many way, many ways, Genesis 1 to 3, as God intended it, chapter 3 through chapter 11, the implications of sin, Genesis chapter 11, all the way through till you get to the book of Matthew, is the story of God re, uh, narrowing down to the redeemer. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is the story of the Redeemer and, God, and, and the Gospel. And the book of Acts uh, uh, is the spreading out of the news of the Redeemer. And then you have the book of Romans all the way up to the book of Jude, the implications of the Redeemer, the implications of the Gospel. And in the book of Revelation, as well as parts of Jude, but especially the book of Revelation, it is the conclusion of the Redeemer. And there is no small wonder that Genesis 21 and 22 looks a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. And the curses found in Genesis 3 are reversed in Revelation 21 and 22. That is the story in a nutshell. But, but what do we do? The Bible makes clear that faith is critical. Even in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like I said before, there's no argument for that. It is something either you must come to the conclusion that God is or that he is not. I will read verse 2 or I will forever close this book. You make that decision right from the very first verse. Is there a God? But as the story goes in sin in chapter 3, God says to Eve in Genesis 3.15, the very first revelation of a redeemer coming. He says uh, to Eve that you will bear a seed and the seed's heel will be wounded by the serpent, by Satan. But the heel of the seed will crush the head of Satan. So it tells us a little bit about the redeemer that it will come of woman, not man. Thus, virgin birth is necessary. It will come from woman and this redeemer will be wounded somehow uh, but that the final and fatal blow will come from the redeemer upon satan himself that's all revealed in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and so in genesis chapter 3 verse 20 it is interesting to note how adam names his wife no children have been born yet no children have been born yet god has said death will now reign but yet, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, he names Eve. He doesn't, he doesn't call her <laughs> troublemaker or sin introducer or any other derogatory name. He says to her, you are the mother of all living. Isn't that interesting? No child had been born yet. God has said death would reign. But yet, he says to her, you are the mother of all living. Why? 
Because God had made a pronouncement that through her will come ultimate life. And I believe it was a statement of faith that Adam himself was making toward Eve. That my hope is in you. And so when Eve has her first son, Cain, it means a seed. See, a seed. Could it be that Cain is my redeemer? And so there was hope, there was faith in the promises of God. And Abraham, the Bible says, when God says to him, you are to move, he does so out of faith. Isaac, you see the faith that still occurs, believing in the promises of God. And so the theme in the book of Genesis that Hebrew brings out later on is that we must have faith in the promises of God. We trust in him. We trust in him. When God comes to Adam and Eve and says, what's going on? Why do you have fig leaves on? And Adam and Eve said, you know, we're ashamed of ourselves. We realized that we were naked. And so we made this covering over our shame. God said, well, who told you? The realization that sin had entered. But notice what happened. The very first time blood was shed. It was done for the purpose of providing a covering for Adam and Eve. Why did Adam and Eve not kill an animal? Because it struck them as that is wrong to do. Let's get fig leaves instead. But God said, there must be a shedding of blood. He didn't make him make him another uh, vegetable outfit. All right. He chose an animal. And shed the blood of an animal for the covering of sin. We see sacrifices implemented in the book of Genesis. And there is something to be said where God was teaching mankind. Yes, there is sin, there is guilt on your life. But with the shedding of blood, God is somehow able to transfer the guilt of the sin upon another innocent. Why was sacrifices introduced? It was to prepare us for the one who would come to replace our sin. And animals were a temporary system to teach us that God can transfer our sin. And so, faith is introduced. But it's not just a faith that says, I believe that God exists. But it's the kind of faith that says to a man like Noah, says, Noah, I'm going to ruin this world by flood. And so Noah says, I will believe you. But it's the type of faith that says, God, tell me what to do. And he spends the next hundred years laboring to build an ark. What am I saying? It is a faith that acts. It is a faith that obeys. It is the kind of faith that when God says to Abraham, Abraham, kill your son and sacrifice. God says, or Abraham says, you know, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to trust you, God, that even if you will, you can resurrect this son from the dead and I will lift up my knife so I can slaughter my own son. It is a faith. That acts. So, when it's all said and done, and you look on this map that Genesis provides, it says, you know where you came from? It was a holy God. He made you. A powerful God. A being that's personal. That knows you. That is in control. But hates sin. And so you ask, well, if, if that's where I'm going, that's where I came from, Where am I at? God says to you, you are made in the image of God and you desire and your greatest longings to be with me. But you are fallen and you cannot be with me. 
you're disappointed in yourself. And God is disappointed in us. But he says, I want to provide a way. Here is the map. It involves faith, trusting in God, and obedience. And so Jesus comes along and says, I am that way. I am that truth. I am that life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In me is the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus says that he is the sacrifice. He is the lamb that was slaughtered for Isaac. He is the angel of the Lord that uh, came to Jacob, to came to Abraham. That, so that when Jesus was asked, was he greater than Abraham? He said in response before Abraham was, I am. God said, let there be light. John 1 says, Jesus is that light. And so when it's all said and done, when you look at this map, and you get all soaked up into the story of Genesis and the forgiveness and Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and wondering how is it God commanded him to slaughter his son. If you go away from Genesis and you don't have Jesus... There's no point in even going any further. That is the most precious possession from the book of Genesis. So do you have Jesus? He is the one that reverses the curse. It is not that I'm going to eternal life, but that I can experience eternal life. And that in my greatest disappointments in myself, God has made a way to cover, and not just cover, but to cleanse my sins. Do you know him? If you don't have that, you have nothing. Let's pray.